electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, American leaders take extreme action to mitigate the pandemic in the U.S. Large gatherings are banned in multiple states, and the public awaits a fast-response coronavirus test. The CEO of the Cleveland Clinic shares his advice for concerned Americans. I cannot emphasize, I cannot stress enough how important it is for people who have symptoms or who believe that they are ill to call first. And the epidemic in China has changed the way people live. In an exclusive conversation just for Squawk Pod, CNBC's Beijing bureau chief, Yunus Yun, tells me what her life has been like reporting during an outbreak. A lot of times you have a big story and then you're, you're covering it, and then after that you come out of it in some ways because it's not so personal to you. But in this one, everything is so personal all the time. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Friday, March 13th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, live at CNBC headquarters. Joe and Andrew are at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Guys, I'm getting questions on Twitter about where I am, why we aren't together. I'm in Inglewood Cliffs at CNBC's headquarters. You two are in Times Square still at the NASDAQ. Mm -hmm. I've also gotten questions about if I'm sick, if that's why we're split up. I'm not. No symptoms here. We're just trying to do what workplaces everywhere are doing, which is to make sure you've got redundancy built in so that if one site does get shut down, you still have operations open at another location. That is the idea. Right. We're all fine. Yep. We're all fine. The we got the same. If, unfortunately, one of us were to get quarantined or the we were. Yep. were to be quarantined. If somebody was exposed, the show it would can shut down continue to go right. on. Exactly. Right. I went to Davos with this cough. <laughs> so when was that? Was that like when was Davos? January. It so that's the, unlikely that. I mean, you've looked at me a few times. Like I have looked when at you I've a few coughed. Times. Well, yes. when you cough, it's like uh, into the elbow, Joe. Into the elbow. <laughs> that's the, that's how I say hi to you now. That's not going to help. All jokes aside, businesses everywhere, including ours, are taking precautions to protect employees and operations from the spread of coronavirus. March Madness is canceled. Broadway has gone dark. Theme parks are closed. Containment measures around the United States continue to ramp up as we wait for a better picture of cases, recoveries, and health screenings. Here's Andrew. Meantime, I want to get over to Meg Terrell, get the latest on where the coronavirus outbreak stands. Meg. Good morning, Andrew. Well, after what many are calling a catastrophic delay, testing capacity is finally ramping up for the coronavirus in the U.S. Diagnostics giant Roche saying it received FDA's emergency authorization for its high-volume test for COVID-19. The systems can provide results in three and a half hours. Roche says it will have millions of tests a month available for use. And that's welcome news to those in the public health world who say we still don't know the scope of the outbreak in the United States. Currently reported cases stand at more than 1,600, 
with 41 dead. Worldwide, cases exceeding 135,000, with deaths approaching 5,000. Almost 70,000 people have recovered, according to data from Johns Hopkins. And many are asking, especially here in the U.S. as numbers grow, what this disease looks like and how long it takes to run its course. Now, we do have some data from the WHO's mission to China to guide us. Those symptoms can range from none at all to severe pneumonia. Almost 90% of lab-confirmed cases had fever, 70% a dry cough, 18% shortness of breath, and 14% a sore throat. 80% of cases were mild to moderate, and mild cases typically recovered within two weeks. Those with more severe disease, it took three to six weeks. Joe? Okay, uh, Meg, uh, that's all, uh, all helpful. And I, I wish I knew the mortality rate, because then I could figure out where we really are here, or at least get an estimate. You know what I mean, Meg? Um, yes. What'd you I wish say? we knew the denominator, right? That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, well, no, we, maybe we can get a, what would you say, 1,600 in the United States, but four, what, how many deaths? 41. I would think that's more like, I mean, not 1,600, because that's such a high mortality rate. So what, if you take an average of what we think the mortality rate is, what does that mean the total would be? I, I, I was trying to figure that out. I guess it would be... 10,000 or so or something like that if it was a well, it depends on whose estimates you use. But if you right. go by Dr. Anthony Fauci, who everybody seems to trust the most on this topic, yeah. he's estimating maybe it'll shake out to be around 1%. Oh, so I hope not. Hey, Meg, can you just speak to one Point other thing? One to one. Let's hope it's below one. Well, let's hope Certainly it's below one. Uh, again, though, and we don't want to instill any fear, but I just want to understand, we, we talk about the death rate, but what other damage can be done. Uh, you know, you read the anecdotal reports about other people who, who became sick and they didn't die, but, the, but, but there were other complications. That's right, Andrew. I mean, you do hear about with these severe pneumonias that there can be uh, lung damage. Um, so we are learning more about that. Uh, and, you know, I'll have to research it a little bit more to come back to you to give you a really good answer. But it's still it. small. It's 80% do not ma manifest that. Right. right? That's right. It's 80 percent have mild to moderate disease, not severe enough to have to go to the hospital for support. OK, let's. Uh, thanks, Meg. The Cleveland Clinic is in the process of developing an internal COVID-19 test that takes hours to get results instead of the two to three days in a lot of situations right now. With us right now is the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Tom Maholovich. And uh, Dr. Maholovich, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this test, why it's faster than the existing ones that are out there. Yeah, good morning, Becky, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, our test is not a new test. Uh, we really did not invent the test. This is exactly the same test that was described in very many other countries, the test that is being used worldwide. The only difference here is that uh, my colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic were following the directions issued from CDC uh, that described the nature and the structure of the test. And then we reallocated our internal resources, people, and technology to develop it inside the house. The test uh, uh, gives our patients the results faster just because it is being done on premises. How many tests can you do at this point on a daily basis? Uh, we can do 500 tests on a daily basis, uh, and we will ramp up that capacity to 1,000 tests uh, a day next week. Uh, doctor, we've heard from a lot of people that they'd like to see drive-in screening so that you're not necessarily putting healthcare workers on the front line at risk by having somebody come into the hospital, the urgent care clinic, the ER. Is that how it will be implemented, or do people need to go to their doctor's office to do this? 
This is a very important point, Becky. It is, I cannot emphasize, I cannot stress enough how important it is for people who have symptoms or who believe that they are ill to call first and to contact their providers first. And then if the screening is necessary, to do it in a facility that is outside of hospital walls. This is something that we will be implementing in a short order here, here at Cleveland Clinic as well. Meaning that, doing, that people yeah. could get it in a drive-up scenario, or how would it work? Yes, exactly. Well, the, uh, it will work, first of all, we have to screen patients, meaning we have to determine whether the testing is actually needed or not. Mm -hmm. Once the screening is completed, then we can do uh, the testing uh, in the outside facility that is going to be uh, accessible, essentially a drive-through model that you're describing. The screening process itself has been what's been so frustrating for so many people. What's your best understanding of what you would have to have experienced in order to say, for, to say okay, yeah, you, you qualify for the test? Yeah, so the, the steps are actually relatively simple. The vast majority of patients who have symptoms, and symptoms include fever and cough, are most likely going to have a flu. We are still in a flu season. So the screening involves the, first the understanding of the symptom of the patients, and then the first step is actually to test for a flu. If a patient were to have a flu, then we've answered the question, However, if the test uh, for flu comes back negative, the next step is to test for COVID-19. There's no chance that COVID-19 and the flu could be simultaneously existing in a patient? It is very unlikely. The answer to that is we do not know it for certain, but it's exceedingly unlikely that we would have a person uh, infected with both viruses. But that knowledge is emerging as well. Andrew? Hey, doctor, we were talking to Dr. Gottlieb about uh, the testing, and one of the things that's come up is uh, the approach that the U.K. seems to have transitioned to just yesterday, which effectively went from trying to identify people through testing to a quarantine method around all people that then came in contact. So effectively, you're, you're basically f finding the equivalent of a patient zero and then, and then identifying everybody that they were con in contact with over the past uh, week or two to effectively saying that that no longer is going to work. Do you think that that is where we're going to move here in the United States as well? Yeah, very possibly. I think to put it in a simple terms, the, the simplest advice that we can give to uh, our patients or your viewers is that if you're sick, stay at home. If you think that you need medical health, please contact medical professionals via phone or telemedicine platforms that allows you to get an appropriate medical advice without really getting to a medical facility. By the way, the, the test that we've heard from Roche, which only takes about three hours or so, is that similar to what you all are doing, just using technology and people to speed the process? Right now, a lot of processes in the laboratories are heavily dependent on, uh, on a workforce, meaning that a, lot of, a large part of uh, the testing is done manually. Uh, what we are learning is that there is an automated capacity uh, that is being built with a new technology that is being uh, uh, developed and shipped by light suppliers like, like Roche, which will allow us to scale out an ability to test much, much faster. Have you had any cases of coronavirus at the Cleveland Clinic? Yes, yes, we had. Just yesterday, we had uh, five patients who tested positive. Dr. Mihaljevic, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me.
The global pandemic has hit the markets hard. As I mentioned here on Squawk Pod earlier this week, U.S. stocks have ended their 11-year bull run. The S&P 500 has joined the Dow in a bear market. Since World War II, bear markets have typically lasted 13 months, and stock markets tend to lose a little over 30 percent of their value during that time. To be clear, a bear market is not a recession. A bear market reflects anxieties about the economy. A recession is when the economy experiences two or more consecutive quarters of decline. We are not there right now, although some economists would argue we're not there yet. Thursday, the Dow and the S&P dropped well over 2,000 points. It was the worst day for the markets since the 1987 crash and before that, 1929. I was worried about the C word yesterday. I really was. I was worried that we could. Yeah, that C word, Becky. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Like the back to like uh, almost. Yeah. I don't even like talking about 1987. And and 10 is pretty close. That's 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 pretty horrific. Yeah. But I'm just hopeful still that that this week we're trying to find a a bottom somewhere. And and, a lower and lower bottom, though. I mean, we're watching 10 percent down in one day. But 28, if if we all we've always acknowledged when Elarian's been on the 20 to 30 is feasible. I just didn't think we'd get from 20 to 30 overnight. But that's better that way, isn't it? That shows that, that, you know, when it was... When you talk about sentiment... Terminal pricing and getting there and bad news getting... I mean, we are discounting. I still... I, I think we've been discounting all week. The worst case scenario, but as I, of you know yesterday, what I, will, I will say when you talk about sentiment, it, it was a flush. But when you talk about sentiment, I hang out at the pickup lines after school, and you start hearing kind of the fear factor that comes just from normal people who are standing right. around watching this stuff. You get asked by every single person what's happening. Everybody's right. watching not only the markets, the closures that they're seeing on an hour by hour basis. I'll tell you, my Becky, my heart. I, I went to Kings. I told you this story. Right. I went to, to a, a, a supermarket yesterday, and for some reason. They had a pallet of, of toilet paper in the and back. I did, and I <laughs> held it dearly, and I'm not really sure why. Okay, no, but I, I, I know why. They were talking about this this morning. Because it was gone everywhere else, and I, I had a chance to get it. It's human nature to try and feel like you That's have control That's not what, over I, what I was getting to. On my way yeah. out, I know this gentleman. He's got to be 80 or, or 90 years old, and I've seen him around and stuff. And I saw him walking in, and I, I, I got almost emotional thinking, what is his life? Because I'm a wimp, and I'm, like yeah. not, I'm not a yeah. vulnerable individual right now, and mm-hmm. I'm scared. And I think about, think if you were a vulnerable right. uh, with an underlying condition or 80 years old or what your life is, is like right now. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Right. And that's, that's why we've got to bend this down if we can. We have to bend the Maybe curve. we are. Maybe because so many things, so many people aren't doing what they were doing before. No Broadway, no. We can only hope that that bends the curve. But, you know, I was, I I spent a lot of time yesterday talking to different hedge fund managers who were thinking about this in in interesting ways. There was a fascinating press conference that was given by Boris Johnson and his his medical community, or medical staff yesterday, where they looked at the curve and were very explicit with the British people in a way that I don't think we have been here. Saying we got to get the herd. uh, No, that effectively, they said, look, here's the curve. This is coming to us in four weeks in London. That's what they were effectively saying. And they sort of walked through the measures they're putting in place today. And they said, in two weeks, we're going to be asking you to do this. And three weeks, we're going to be asking you to do this. And this, I mean, and I think that part of it, I'm still not sure. And this is the, my, this, this is the glass half uh, empty, empty. Uh, approach to this. I'm not sure we totally are there on that 
part of it yet. Well, because it's because those it's are... happening on a locality basis here with different regions. I would say it caught up with our area yesterday. Our kids aren't going to school anymore. They're canceling right. next week, but I'm not sending my kids today, and a lot of people I know aren't sending their kids today. Every sport got canceled. Prom got canceled. SATs got canceled. You watch what happened with Broadway with all the sporting events. I would say in some regions and in some areas it caught up pretty quickly, just not everywhere in the country because this is right. being handled on a state-by-state and, 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 locality and, and, basis. I've been talking about this. The... the one of the health people in, in Ohio said, we have 100,000 cases in Ohio. And I said, oh, my God, that's horrible. And I looked at how she got there. Yeah. She, did, she did the population of Ohio and multiplied by 1%. Now, that, that may or may not be true, but I don't think it's being confirmed by the emergency room anecdotal evidence of what's going on there. And no, I think it's irres- no, 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 but I think no. it's irresponsible to say we already have 100,000 oh, people. Irresponsible. Did you see Rashida Tlaib said there's no, going no. to be 150 million because someone went to Congress and said 70 to 150 million if we don't bend. If you don't and, bend the curve. If you don't bend. But they're we, just, I don't know. Is that, I think that that is really scary. And, but I don't know whether we need to be there well, yet. Look, here's my question to you. And, yes. And I, I can't say his name on the air. A, a, a very well-known, bold-faced hedge fund manager, who yeah. we all know very well, said to me this. Uh, the market right now is at effectively where we were in September of 2019. That's, that's where we are right now. Right. Okay? Oh, of 2018. 2018. Yeah. Um, if you think the market looks ahead 12 months. Right. Do you think that's where we are right now? That's the question. Right. Meaning, think about, think about what life was like then. Right. Where business was then and what the expectations were then relative to what they are now. We need to know. And I think, and, and I, again, I know it's a glass half-empty approach. But you need approach. to know whether we're Italy or South Korea or, or China or... We don't even know what I South Korea and China are yet. We've well, got to watch that thing, that's you, true. Our China or South Korea, you're still, you're still not in September. Put it this way. I think South Korea and China were doing a lot better, with, and the expectations were a lot better in September of 2018 the, the, than they are today. And that's, that's the worry. The other it's, thing I'll say is, you know, we look at the, the Treasury market and think, okay, good signs that the, the yield is firming up a little bit. But you could look at that from the other direction and just think, wow, everything was getting sold yesterday. Gold, you know, yeah. you look Bitcoin. at the Treasury it's, market, it's, it's you look at stocks, un- unprecedented, people moving to cash and getting out of these yeah, things. Yeah, unprecedented anything with any risk. It's an yeah. unprecedented situation we find ourselves in. And watching markets like that, in the old days, we'd say, wow, I saw my life before my eyes with what's happening in the stock market. But you put it in context. Yeah. In this case, yeah. your, 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 okay. your financial life is passing forward, right. and you're worried about your, the safety of yourself and your loved yeah. ones and your family. Uh-huh. So it's, un, I, I it's would say unprecedented. It makes me feel more comforted to remember what's important and what's not. I know. I'll tell you, things, when so. I hunker down, everybody's home now, and yeah. you know, people aren't at college. Not everybody's happy about that, believe me. Oh, but, trust uh, me. We had conversations yesterday about this, too. Right. Yeah. And I have to tell him, look, no, okay. No, you can't go to the gym. It, it, right. <laughs> it, 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 oh, I, I, I sent something to my trainer who's mad at me for not going. It, it, it says, it, like, a super, a super, uh, someone that has it and gives it to everyone could go to a gym and sweat on anything. A gym could be, and I sent it, it's like, I hope you're not still, still going, but that, this is the kind of I mean, I'm getting notes from concern. Barry's boot camp where, where 50 people pack in a room and they're saying they're, they're, at, they're adding sanitizer, you know, hand sanitizer. Yeah, I'm that's going to do it. I'm but. thinking this is not for me. No, well, it's not for me. With <laughs> a year ago, that, wouldn't be. Having said that, yeah, you know, all right. yeah, yeah. Well, here we are, the three of us. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, CNBC's Beijing bureau chief Yunus Yun describes reporting and living through the coronavirus outbreak in China. The first thing I saw was the guy wearing a hazmat suit. 
right outside my door. And I got so unsettled seeing that because we had just been hearing that things were getting better. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. If you're a viewer of Squawk Box or a listener of Squawk Pod, you are familiar with the reporting of CNBC Beijing Bureau Chief Yunus Yun. My name is Yunus Yun, and I am reporting for CNBC in China, and I've been doing it for a couple of years. Yunus is indefatigable, especially in the last two months or so, as the rapid spread of coronavirus in China disrupted daily life there. And as we here in the U.S. consider closed schools and public events, Yunus's reporting was prescient. She's been a fixture since earlier this year when we first started talking about what we now know as COVID-19. In fact, one of the first times we mentioned the virus was at the World Economic Forum when Joe Kernan asked President Trump about it. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's going to be just fine. That was January 22nd of this year in Davos. Eunice has reported across the region and has had a front row seat to many of the stories of the economic rise of China, issues surrounding the Beijing Olympics, the Asian tsunami in 2004, and she was one of the first journalists to reach the Sichuan earthquake zone in 2008. I was assigned, and I guess this also just fell into, the reporting for the trade war between the U.S. and China, which was really, really interesting and ended Well, it seemed to end on January 15th with a signing of President Trump, um, you know, signing signing that deal. Today we take a momentous step toward a future of fair and reciprocal trade as we sign phase one of the historic trade deal between the United States and China. And being really excited about it and then suddenly a couple of days later got thrown into the, the epidemic. Tell me a bit about the evolution of the virus and the coverage and attention to it. Well, we heard about it earlier. So late, very late December, early January, we started hearing reports that there was a mysterious virus in Wuhan. And so, um, you know, from a U.S. perspective, it's a town that most people hadn't really heard of. Um, there were several cases. It was all seemed as though it's connected to a wet market, so where there are a lot of different animals and some of them exotic. And this is something that we see quite often in, in China, where you see these types of live markets. Of course, people getting sick is always a, a terrible thing, but, but it didn't seem so serious because there, we were constantly hearing that there wasn't any human-to-human transmission. We're going to get to China right now. Thanks so much, Andrew. Well, you know, it's not a government requirement to wear masks in Beijing. But out of an abundance of, of caution, nearly everyone, including myself and my crew, is. There was a push to either regulate or even close down some of these wildlife uh, centers where they sell this crazy meat, any kind of meat you want, that, that you can eat, and, and bat soup and all that stuff. It's bats or snakes. Right. So there's supposed to be an intermediary, snakes as well. So it, there's still a question mark. But and then it was only late... January, um, where the 
the cases started to jump, one of the top epidemiologists in China said that that they could confirm that there was human-to-human transmission. And then that was um, a point when a lot of people took notice and and were concerned because we were also heading into the Lunar New Year holiday. Mm -hmm. And that's when hundreds of millions of people start to travel across China. And uh, the idea that you would have some type of mystery virus that is moving human to human in this massive population of people all traveling, not only within China, but outside of China, it just seemed as though it was a, a recipe for disaster. And that's, that's when we started thinking we, we, this is going to be a, a really big story. What's Chinese state media reaction to all of this? Um, well, in the beginning, it was there wasn't a whole lot of reporting, and then I think if anything, it was the the state media was downplaying uh, the problems, um, and um, it was only a little bit later that um, that uh, we suddenly started seeing a lot more reporting about what was going on. There's reporting about it, but a lot of it is very very positive, and um, you know, look at this achievement that's been done, or oh, this hospital. That's been built in, you know, just a number of days. Like, aren't we so great? And President Xi Jinping, who um, in the beginning, uh, there were a lot of complaints that he was he was largely absent from um, from uh, kind of running the show and and appearing in the, in the state press. Uh, um, that that suddenly, you know, now he's the one in charge, and and we hear about something that he's done every single, pretty much every day. Um, about how he's leading this and um, slaying the the demon coronavirus, um, as uh, as has been described in state media. And an element of your reporting that's been really compelling to us on on Squawk Box is the impact from very small to to very large to to daily life. For those of us living in China, wearing a mask is standard practice. Can you walk me through like your daily routine and how it's changed as? Um, coverage has grown and as fear has grown? Masks are really hard to come by. I was here the other day and managed to find three for $31. Yeah, it's, um, I think in the very beginning, um, we, we just started noticing that even within our own compound, just to even get to, to the office, things started getting a little bit more difficult. So the security guards started wearing um, gloves and then masks, and then suddenly they're wearing goggles. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and they're taking your temperature the entire time. This is one of the entrances to my apartment complex, but more and more housing estates, office buildings, and public areas are setting up barricades and temperature checks. This is the compound where the CNBC bureau is. I have to get a temperature check here, too. So my temperature was a little bit on the low side, but still normal. But if I had a fever, he would report me to the authorities. In the past, we'd be able to take a car and, or a taxi and just drive right up into the, to the building, and then they stopped uh, us from doing that. So at this stage now, we carry all of our gear into, we have to walk for a while, and then we, we get to the gate, and then we have to, sometimes they spray your gear as you go through. And, your um, camera everything equipment for spraying with, with sanitizer? Yeah, our camera equipment, everything. It's just things are a little bit more difficult to get in and out of out of the office. I've never really been a part of a story for so long where every it's you just you can't. A lot of times you have a big story and then you're you're covering it and then after that you come out of it in some ways because it's not so personal to you. But in this one, everything is so personal all the time. It started getting a little bit scary sometimes is that um, just to even get into your own house, things started getting more difficult. So mm-hmm. for me, 
um, you know, I, ha- I went from having to just get a temperature check and then suddenly you have to prove, oh, wait, let me make sure that we have your house key. We want to see your passport. We want to see mm-hmm. your, um, your uh, residential card. And then now you have to apply for another residential card where you're only allowed to have um, three per household. And so if you have more people in your house, then too bad. Those people can't leave the house. Oh they can't goodness. leave. The, they could. They could stay in the compound, uh, but they they could go to the grocery store. That's the only store that's allowed to be opened in this place. But um, but they can't leave, and uh, and so that's that's when things started getting a little bit uh, more. I guess even uh, to be honest, kind of exhausting after a while <laughs> because then you would you'd feel like you're just just to get in and out of your own house. And I I would think pretty unsettling to be leaving your apartment in the morning and seeing people working for your apartment wearing hazmat suits as you walk out. Disinfection stations are popping up at apartment buildings all over the city. These makeshift stations are meant to sanitize people's clothing and their shoes as they enter. Security say they spray disinfectant inside every two to three hours. Actually, you know, that moment, that was, I, I kind of, you know, up, up until this point when I, I was reporting and just doing everything, you see all these changes, you're wearing the mask. You, you know, one of the things that was funny was wearing a mask and then having people comment about it on TV, you know, from TV or on Twitter. They'll say, oh, you know, stay safe, Eunice, or other people are saying, stop wearing that mask, you're killing the market. <laughs> you know, the reporting part was okay. And then, and then um, I had to go in early one day, and the first thing I saw was the guy wearing a hazmat suit right outside my door. And mm. I got so unsettled seeing that because we had just been hearing that things were getting better because it was a couple of weeks in at that point. It was in mid-February. And I thought, okay, things are getting better. You know, the numbers are looking better. The infection rate's lower. Everything is moving in the right direction. Why is this guy wearing a hazmat suit suddenly? And then I had to get myself, you know, get myself together and then just go on air and just do it. I'm just wondering, how are you? How are you doing? Do you ever wake up in the, in the middle? I mean, I, can, I wake up scared over here. Do you ever? I mean, is it really? Hard? <laughs> I do. Uh, not, not just about coronavirus, but, but about a lot of things. But, I mean, how is it for you now? It, it, must, be, it's, it must be terrifying, isn't it? Um, well, it, it just kind of comes in waves, you know, where sometimes you do get nervous because yeah. um, something like I'll, the other day, I, I think I told you, I saw one of our security guards and he was wearing a hazmat suit. And so that really threw me off because I thought well, I thought things were getting better. Why are these people wearing hazmat suits right now? Right. Um, also, um, I got a little bit jarred because they have disinfection stations. And then uh, we were asking what they were spraying and they're spraying people with bleach. So, of course, that kills off the virus. But I don't really know if that's something that's necessarily healthy for you. Yeah. So there are times when um, I do get nervous, but um, but for the most part, I think that, um, well, I hope it's going to be okay. Yeah, I, and, uh, you know, and, and I know you probably reporting hear, the news, right? Repeating yeah. the news, reporting the news. And is it challenging to continue to report? How has that been impacted by all of these safety measures that are pretty yeah. limiting to movement? Well, I guess not, number one, people don't want to meet you. I mean, it's <laughs> in China, a lot of times people are nervous about um, meeting foreign journalists anyway, but. Mm-hmm. But um, but this makes it even more of a security issue, and of course you a health security issue, and you want to make sure they're safe, and you want to make sure you and your team are safe too. As this this kind of story was unfolding, we would also just like everybody else check the check apps to see you could there are certain apps that track um, where the cases are in your city, wow. and so we started tracking which parts of the city have 
more cases and fewer cases? And then is it safe enough for us to, to go there? So, for example, the World Health Organization was going to have a briefing, and we thought, oh, this is really important. Um, we, we should go. And it just happened to coincide when there were a bunch of cases that broke out in that area. And we decided we would go, but then um, I actually wore goggles that day, and then I took them off right before my live shot because I thought if I go on air after after already scaring people wearing this mask, which I, I definitely didn't want to take off, but if I go on air wearing um, goggles and I'm already wearing gloves and a mask, I think people are going to get really worried. When you're moving around Beijing, you're wearing a mask when you're out on the streets or mm-hmm. in taxis or anywhere? Yep. Anywhere. Everybody is. Mm-hmm. Everyone is. And, you know, it's funny because there's been, you know, I've, I've heard a lot um, of people saying, oh, you know, you don't need to wear a mask. You shouldn't have to wear a mask. It's unnecessary. And um, I actually have come to think that it makes sense for people to wear a mask because in, in China, anyway, they're um, in a lot of different parts of the country. It's you know, it's, it's a really rich nation, and then it's also not an, a, a rich nation. It's, it's got, like, parts where there's incredibly educated people and then not so educated people. And, and so it's just the fact that everybody has to wear a mask um, just puts an extra layer of um, security, I think, in between. Even I've had police come up to me in the street because there was one time when I was in a, a park, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to take my mask off for a little bit because it's so nice. Mm-hmm. There aren't many people. I'm just going to breathe properly because it's kind of hard to breathe in the mask. And then, um, and then there was a, a line of police, and, they, and I got scolded. How has all of this changed, just the local economy, things as basic as grocery stores and shopping malls and, and movie theaters? I think that, um, on the whole, business has been really, really slow. I mean, it was just so quiet. I think that there are a lot of businesses that are, are seriously concerned that they're not going to be able to survive this period. Restaurants here in Beijing are grappling with new regulations. This city now bans group meals. Basically, we're not having customers. Alex Molina's Mosto Group runs 14 restaurants like this one in China. Most of our locations are closed. These are the kind of services that will go away forever. You know, you can't, you know, there are a bunch of people who are delaying purchases of certain items like cars, for example, or you, know, you can buy a, wa- if you want to buy a washing machine, but you're, you're just going to delay it because of this, you'll buy it in a couple of months. And so those businesses might be okay. But going to the spa or something. Mm-hmm. If you want to get your nails done or you get your dry cleaning done or you get all of these types of services, it's just that, and, and restaurants, those, those are the, the, the types of industries that are, are really um, suffering and, and probably won't, won't be able to come back from that. We talk a lot on CNBC about Chinese retail giants like JD.com and Alibaba, mm-hmm. um, who are essentially a bit like the Amazons uh, uh, of China. How are these companies responding and are, are we... Can we expect to see some sort of an uptick in, in the business that they've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain certain companies that are doing well. You you'd mentioned JD, um, massive online retailer, and in this environment when nobody wants to go out, they all order, and, um, you know, JD it benefits. Wang Hong is on the front line helping Chinese get through the coronavirus outbreak. Wang is a courier in Beijing, part of an army of people delivering groceries and just about everything else to families pulled up at home to avoid the virus. 
They take a lot of precautions. They have their, and, and they actually deliver in Wuhan, which is, you know, we talked about the epicenter. Before the coronavirus outbreak, Pei Jin Yu rarely stepped foot in his kitchen. Today, he barely leaves it. Pei is holed up at home and spending only a third of what he used to. There are other, you know, online, anything that's video gaming, anything where you're staying indoors, all of these types of these uh, uh, businesses are actually doing much better because people are choosing to just stay at home. There was this massive um, demand for anything that was uh, medical, so so uh, or and and disinfectants. What's next for you? I think bu- buying disinfectant and and uh... <laughs> yeah, no, that's already happening. Actually, that's it's totally changed what I do every weekend. <laughs> that's for sure. Now I, I that's what I'm doing every Saturday night. Um, just cleaning out um, the toilets, doing loads of laundry, disinfecting the house. I used to never disinfect the house because I didn't think it was that. I would clean the floors, but I didn't think that I would have to actually put um, a bleach on, on mm-hmm. my floors. And uh, that's, yeah, it's, I've, I've um, definitely doing that all the time. I like these kind of moments sometimes and that it reminds me of how important all these different people are in my life that I just, I don't want to take them for granted that, that, you know, there are all these people who help you like the dry cleaner who's always there and so reliable, you know, all these people have still not returned. I just never want to take any of these people for granted. Since Eunice and I spoke a few days ago, some of China is getting back to business. Workers are beginning to return and the country is reporting fewer new cases of COVID-19. Special thanks to Eunice Yoon in Beijing for her tireless work and for her time in sharing her thoughts with us. You can follow Eunice on Twitter and on Instagram at TV. I encourage you to do so for more about life in the time of coronavirus. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. And that's the show for today. Thank you for listening. As always, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. John Lazration and Ryan Cross edited this episode. If you like hearing Squawk Box in pod form, help us out. Subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe, too. We will meet you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.